Well, you may want to have your Bible open to the book of Esther this morning. We're going to take a look at the whole book, the whole story of Esther. And the reason we're looking at Esther this morning is because that is what the gems, the gems have been focusing on this year. So if you've been following the Bible reading challenge, and I know many uh, members of this church have been, then you have recently read the story of Esther. We read the book of Esther during the last week of January this year, but just in order to make sure that the story is fresh on all of our minds, I'm going to briefly retell the story. We'll hear the story of Esther. It's a great story. It's a true story, but it's a very, it's a very compelling story. There's so many plot twists. It, it, it feels like you're reading a Shakespeare story or something like that. So we'll hear the story, and then, and, and then we'll hear some practical lessons about how God can apply that to our lives today. So let me pray first, and then we'll think about Esther together. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. It's good to be together, and it's good to be in your presence. We thank you for the story of Esther. We thank you that you raised up Esther and Mordecai for your purposes, to accomplish your purposes for your people here on earth. And I pray that we would hear and understand this story, that we would be encouraged by it, and that you would use it to equip us to be faithful in our life. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to start at the end. I'm going to start by reading from chapter 9 and verses 29 to 32. And what you'll see right at the end of Esther, it explains that the story of Esther is actually an origin story. The story of Esther is telling us how something came about, how something began. It's telling us the story of Purim. Purim is a feast that the Jewish people celebrate, and Esther is a story of why they celebrate this particular feast every single year. And so at the end of Esther, it says this, Esther 9, and starting in verse 29, it says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. This is the word of the Lord. That is the beginning of the annual Feast of Purim. And now we're going to hear the story of why it is that Jewish people celebrate this feast. The story goes like this. This, is, this story takes place not in Jerusalem, not in the land, the promised land of Israel, but in Persia. And the king of Persia hosts a giant, multi-day, like week-long public party, public feast. Everybody's invited to come and celebrate and party. And at one time during this feast, the king decides he wants his wife to come and be present with him. Enjoy. She was having a separate feast with some of the women. He wanted her to come out and join everybody. And so he called for her. And her name is Vashti. For whatever reason, we're not told why, but for whatever reason, she didn't want to come. And so she didn't. She refused to come when her husband, the king, called her. And that made the king so angry, so upset, that he decides to get rid of her and move on and find a new wife. 
And so he begins the hunt for a new queen. And Esther, the woman after whom the book is named, Esther, is chosen as the new queen. Now, Esther is an orphan. Esther is from Jewish background. And Esther has a caretaker named Mordecai. It's her uncle Mordecai. And the very next plot point in the story, after Esther becomes queen, her uncle Mordecai is just standing around minding his own business and he overhears a plot. The plot is to assassinate the king. And here's what happens. I'm reading now. I'm reading from chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23. It says, And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, and when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, if you know anything about storytelling, then you know that this little incident and the fact that this happened and then it gets recorded in some sort of official record of the kingdom and then filed away, you know, if you know how stories work, that that's going to come up again later in the story. That, that's not just a random detail. That's important. Mordecai saved the king. His saving of the king got written down in this special book and it got filed away. Okay. Anyways, the story continues on, and now we meet the bad guy, the guy named Haman. Now, at this point in the story, Haman, at least, at least in the king's eyes, Haman is a good guy. The king likes Haman, and the king wants to honor Haman. So the king makes a decree that when Haman's out and about, about town, whenever Haman passes someone on the street, they need to show him respect. They need to show him honor by bowing down to him. That's a rule, a new rule. Well, Mordecai doesn't like that rule. Mordecai sees Haman, but Mordecai refuses to bow down. In fact, every single time that Haman passes Mordecai, Mordecai steadfastly refuses to bow down. Every time Haman goes past, there's a whole bunch of people with, looking like this, and there's Mordecai standing straight up looking at Haman, and it makes Haman quite, quite angry. In fact, he's so angry I mean, I, I'm pretty sure we could call this a, a, a severe overreaction, but he is so angry that he decides not only does he want to kill Mordecai, but he wants to kill all of the Jewish people because they're somehow related to Mordecai. All of them have to go. Now, here's a quick question that rarely gets asked for us to ponder before we move on with the story. Should Mordecai have bowed to Haman? Ever wonder that? Should he have? Sometimes I think that because Mordecai is one of the heroes of the story, we assume that everything he does in the story is right. But was that right? I'm not so sure. Mordecai didn't have to worship Haman. Bowing to Haman wasn't a form of worship. He just had to show respect to him. He had to honor him. Bowing to someone in that culture was a perfectly common way to show respect. So why not do that? By refusing to honor Haman, Mordecai basically earns a death sentence for all of his people. Seems to me that if he would have exercised a little humility and extended some respect and courtesy, the situation might have been avoided. Something to think about. 
regardless of whether Mordecai's refusal to bow was right or wrong. I'll let you decide that. God is able to use it for his purposes. All right, back to the story. Haman is able to convince the king to make a decree that is going to be okay on a certain day to kill all the Jews. Remember, the king still likes Haman at this point, so he agrees, fine, you can have your way, all right, you can pick a day, and we can, you can kill all the Jews on that day. And so a decree is issued, believe it or not, a decree is issued. I'm reading from chapter 3. In verses 13 and 14, and it says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, month which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to, was to be issued as a decree in every province, by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Okay, so now on the books, officially, formally, there is this weird law that says that on this particular day that's coming up, anyone who wants to, anyone who feels like it, can go ahead and kill any Jews that they want, any Jews that they find. It's fine on this day, not other days, but on this day, go ahead and kill them. So Mordecai hears about this law, he brings it to Esther's attention, his niece. He says, look, look, Esther, the king is your husband. You better do something about this, or we're all going to die. You're the only one who has any chance of persuading him, of talking to him and persuading him to change this thing. If you don't do this, we're, we're all going to die. And Esther says, what do you want me to do? No one... Not even his wife. No one is allowed to go in and see the king unless the king calls them to come in. You have to be invited to the party if you want to go and see the king. And you know what? The king hasn't called me in over a month. I haven't seen him in over a month. And you know, Mordecai, that if anyone goes in there without being called to go in there but just strolls in there, then he has every right to kill them. And Mordecai says, well, look, Esther, if you don't go in there and give it a try, guess what? We're all going to die anyways. You included. Have you forgotten that you're also a Jew? And who knows, Esther, whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Right? Mordecai is saying, hey, who knows if the very reason that you have been made queen, I mean, didn't it seem kind of fishy to you, Esther, that a poor orphan girl is all of a sudden queen of Persia? Who knows, but God raised you up for such a time as this, for this very reason, Esther. And Esther responds with one of the all-time great lines in the whole Bible. This is one to hang on to and remember. She says, all right, fine, I'll do that. First of all, you hold a fast on my behalf for three days, okay? Fast and pray for me. Then I'll go in and see the king. Even though it's against the law, I will go in and see the king. And if I die, I die perfect line, right? Like she knows she's, she's going into a dangerous place. She knows that. And she knows that God is not obligated to save her life. She knows that too. But in the name of obedience and faithfulness, she basically says, all right, the Lord's will be done. I will be faithful. And if I die, I die. Well, she goes in. She does not die. 
The king extends his golden scepter to her, which is a sign of mercy, which is a sign that she's going to make it through the day. And he asks her what she wants. And she, rather than just immediately telling the king what she wants, she invites the king and Haman to a private feast. And so they come to the feast, and the king says, all right, here we are, the three of us. What is it that you wanted? And she says, well, here's the thing, king. If, if you, I, I'll tell you tomorrow. You and Haman, come back for another private feast tomorrow, and I'll tell you then. And so they agree, okay. Haman goes out feeling very happy because he's feeling very important, because he's having feasts, private feasts with the king and queen. But then on his way out, he goes past the king's gate, and who should he see but Mordecai not bowing. And it ruins the moment. It ruins his day. It ruins his good feeling that he had about being so important because now all he can think about is how much he hates Mordecai. And so he goes home and he grumbles to his wife about Mordecai and how much he hates Mordecai and he probably kicks the dog and he says, I, I'm just so unhappy and I'll never be happy as long as that Mordecai is out there standing at the gate and not bowing at me. And she says, well, how about this? Why don't you go out right now and why don't you build a great big gallows? And tomorrow morning, when tomorrow rolls around, why don't you go ahead and hang Mordecai on that gallows? I bet then you'll feel better, and then he'll be dead, and then you can go enjoy your party with the king and queen. Haman loves that idea. He immediately, immediately, he doesn't even pause for dinner or anything. He just goes out there, gets his tools, and starts building a gallows. But now, even as you picture, you're picturing Haman, right? He's got his tool belt on, and he's pounding in nails, and he's building a gallows. Even as you're picturing that, I want you to go to a different place in your mind and look inside a window. Go to the palace. Look inside the window of the king's bedroom. And what you'll see there is not a, there's not a king that's peacefully sleeping and counting sheep. What you'll find is a frustrated man who cannot sleep. And so he decides, because he cannot sleep, that he's going to do some late-night reading. And he decides maybe he'll read from that book, you know, the book of memorable deeds that just tells about all of these amazing things that citizens have done. And someone takes that book of memorable deeds and opens it and happens to turn to the page that tells the story of how Mordecai foiled the plot to assassinate the king. And the king is reading this story, and it's about him and how his life got saved by this guy, Mordecai. And the king says, hey, wait a minute. Has anything been done to honor this guy, Mordecai? He saved my life. And they say, well, no, actually, no. We just wrote it in the book and filed it away. We didn't do anything for him. And just then, as they're having this conversation, Haman shows up. Right? After a long night of gallows building, <laughs> he finished his project, and he shows up. And the king says, perfect, Haman, I got a question for you. What would you do if you really wanted to honor someone? What would you do for them? And Haman thinks, perfect. Finally, finally, the king is going to honor me. The king is trying to figure out the best possible way to honor me. And he says, I'll tell you what. You know what? I've actually thought a lot about this. I've got a great idea. Here's what you do. You take this guy that you want to honor. You put your royal robes on him. right? Make him look real good. And then you set him on one of your royal horses, one of the big fancy ones. And... Put a crown on his head. Make him look like a king. And then parade him through the city for everyone to see. This is what it looks like when the king wants to honor somebody. And the king says, perfect. 
Perfect. I love your plan. Now go do that to Mordecai. <laughs> and he says, what? Uh-oh. Wait a minute. We're not, we're not talking. You want me to, what? Go do that to Mordecai? And he's so ashamed and so embarrassed and so angry. You've got to remember, this is a guy. He can't. All he thinks about is how much he hates Mordecai. He can't even sleep at night because of how much he hates Mordecai. And now he's got to lead him through town while everybody celebrates how awesome Mordecai is. It's so humiliating. And the next thing you know, that's been done. Haman's been humiliated. And we're at the private feast now with Esther and the king and Haman. And the king says, all right, Esther, we've been waiting now for two days. Tell me your request. And Esther explains and says, king, here's the thing. It's a serious request. My people have been sold out. I am Jewish. I'm from the Jewish people. And there is an edict now that is going to result in the destruction of all of my people. And the king says, what? How is it possible? Who's done this? And Esther says, it was Haman. And the king is outraged, and he's so angry, he gets up and he storms out of the room. And Haman realizes what's about to happen to him. And so he runs over to Esther, and he's begging for his life. And the king comes back in, sees what's happening, thinks Haman is trying to assault Esther. And one of the king's servants says, a very sharp servant says, Hey, you know what? I'm on my way in this morning into the office. I notice that there happens to be a brand new gallows just built behind Haman's house. <laughs> And the king says, what? And the guy's like, yeah, it's just, I wasn't there yesterday, but it's there now. The king says, perfect, let's go there. Bring Haman. And so Haman is hung. And Esther and Mordecai are given Haman's house. And Esther says, well, that's great, thank you, but having a new house is not going to do us much good if we're slaughtered. So could you please, king, could you please take back the decree that says that all Jews can be killed on the particular day. And the king says, well, actually, no, because that's not how my decrees work. My decrees are binding. They're non-refundable. They're, non, they're non-reversible. Once I make a decree, that's it. Now, if you want to make an additional decree that might somehow counteract the one that I made, that's fine. You go for it. But I can't change the one I made. So they make a new decree. And it says, you know what? On that day when everyone's allowed to kill the Jews, well, guess what? They're allowed to gather and defend themselves. And they're allowed to kill anyone that tries to kill them. So now the day rolls around, and instead of being a victory for the enemies of the Jews, it is a victory for the Jews themselves, and they defend themselves, and they destroy their enemies. And from then on, On the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Purim to commemorate this story of Esther and the deliverance of God's people from their enemies. Now that's the story. That's the story of Esther. Now we just need to think about some practical lessons. Let me start, as we think about practical lessons, let me start by some common lessons that are pulled out of the book of Esther that kind of miss the main point. They're they're good lessons, they're true lessons, but they kind of put the cart before the horse and they miss the main point. Right? So if 
if this morning, by way of application, we now said to ourselves, well, okay, well, then we need to be faithful like Esther is faithful. That's the application. We just need to be faithful. Or maybe we'll tell ourselves, oh, well, maybe we need to, maybe the lesson is we need to avoid the sin of pride because Haman was very prideful and that didn't go well for him. So maybe the lesson is avoid pride. Don't be like Haman. Or maybe, maybe it's about wisdom. Maybe be like Mordecai. Be wise like Mordecai. Or maybe it's about bravery. Esther is very brave, right? If I die, I die. That's a brave thing to say. Maybe the lesson is be brave like Esther. Or maybe it's listen to the advice of your elders, right? Esther did that. That was good. Or maybe it's be willing to change your mind. Like the king, the king kind of changed his mind during the story. Maybe that's the lesson. Well, all of those points are good. Those are all good practical life lessons, right? But all of those points miss the main point of the book of Esther. Because the book of Esther, from start to finish, is all about God. God is present and active in every single scene in the book of Esther. God is present and active in every single sentence in the book of Esther, which is ironic because it is one of only two books in the whole Bible that doesn't actually mention God. God is never named in the book of Esther, and yet God is all over the book of Esther. And so that's why the five points that the gems have focused on this year in the book of Esther are all about God, right? During that litany, we heard him, we heard him making all these points, not about Esther, but about God, right? These lessons that the gems have been focusing on, that God is king. Hey, their, their lesson there wasn't Esther is queen, although Esther was queen, but their lesson is God is king. God is our deliverer. Right? God used human means, but God is our deliverer. God is trustworthy. God is always at work. And God is with you wherever you go. Those are the lessons that the gems have been focusing on this year. They're all about God. And those are good points of application from the book of Esther. I find that the way God operates in Esther is how he often operates in, in the world that we experience today. God is present, but unseen. Present, but unseen, right? Not always. I mean, sometimes God works in big, miraculous, seen ways, right? Exodus-type ways, right? When you think of Exodus, you think of big miracles, right? You think of plagues and, and parting seas and manna and burning bushes and big miracles. But other times, and I would argue more commonly, God works in more Esther-type ways. He's definitely still at work in the world. He's at work in a way that's no less miraculous, but it feels more common, more mundane. Instead of performing miracles, God often uses normal circumstances to still accomplish his will. Right? For example, there are no miracles in Esther that require supernatural bending or breaking of the laws of physics. There's not that kind of miracle in Esther. And yet, look at all of the circumstances that God sovereignly lined up in the story. Did you notice that as it was happening? I tried to tell it in a way that highlighted these coincidences. Right? The king, I mean, first of all, Esther just so happens to be single and beautiful right when the king is looking for a new wife. And the king chooses Esther as his new wife, and the king doesn't even know 
that Esther's background is Jewish. And Mordecai just happens to be standing in the right place at the right time to overhear this plot to assassinate the king. Those are not very cautious assassins. And that report of the incident just happens to get recorded in the king's chronicles and filed away for later use. For some reason, Mordecai decides not to bow down to Haman. Haman does happen to notice his non-bowing and is somehow able to find out who Mordecai is and that he's Jewish. As Haman's plotting his revenge, we're told that he cast lots to determine the date uh, when all the Jews would be killed. And the lots, when he cast the lots, it just happens to give a date that pushes his plan off for almost an entire year. And for some reason, the king is feeling merciful on the day that Esther barges into his presence without being summoned, and he extends his golden scepter. And for some reason, even though Esther is granted an audience with the king and with Haman, she defers her request to the king for another day. For some reason, she waits another day. We're not sure why. And it happens that between those two days, between those two feasts, Haman encounters Mordecai again, is reminded of his hatred for Mordecai again, and decides that very night to go home and build a giant gallows. Haman then decides to go and see the king first thing in the morning at the precise time when the king is trying to decide how to honor Mordecai. Because, who would have ever guessed it, but the king couldn't sleep last night and he just so happened to pull the right volume off the shelf and turn to the right page to read the story of how Mordecai saved his life. And oddly enough, Mordecai had never been honored for that valiant act. You'd think he would have, but he hadn't. Later in the story, the king happens to walk back into the room at the right exact moment when Haman is begging for his life from Queen Esther and it looks like he's assaulting her. And the gallows that Haman built just happened to be ready that very morning for the king to hang Haman on them. Now, all of those events are explainable by natural causes, right? But that's an awful lot of coincidences for one story, isn't it? And isn't that so often how God works in our lives and in our world? Present and active for sure, but unseen always accomplishing his will, always, often using normal means and normal circumstances to do so. And so as we close our time this morning, I want to give just two, two theological couplets, two pairs of theological statements that go together and that are on display in the book of Esther. So the first couplet, the first pair, the first theological truths that go together are this. God's will is always accomplished. And humans are perfectly free agents. God's will will be done, and humans are free agents. They, those are both true, and they both go together, and they're both on display in the book of Esther. Right? God has a plan to protect his people. He will definitely accomplish that plan. But throughout the story, we see humans humans who have no idea what God's plan is making decisions, taking action. Right? Acting freely, making their own choices, and yet taking actions that conform to and promote God's plan, whether they know it or not. Queen Vashti freely chooses not to go to her husband when he summons her. Had she made a different decision, there's no story of Esther. There's no problem. But her refusal sets in motion a series of events that puts this 
Jewish orphan girl on the throne. Mordecai makes a free decision not to bow to Haman. And that sets in motion a series of events that results in the threat and the deliverance of God's people. Haman, by his own decision, chooses to hate the whole group of Jewish people. The king doesn't really care about Jewish people one way or another, but he, but he loves his wife. And he decides that he's going to help the Jewish people, a free decision that he makes, but that falls right in the line with the Lord's will. We could keep going, but the point is that all of these humans in this story are freely making decisions, and yet God, the master weaver, is over all of it, and he's taking every one of those individual decisions and he's weaving them into the story that he's telling. And that should provide a high level of comfort to you and I today because God still does that. I bet you can look back on your own life. Think about it. I bet you can see the ways that God has been weaving your story. I bet you can see the ways that God has coordinated your circumstances in order to bring you just exactly to where he wanted you to be, even if you didn't know it at the time. And knowing that that's how God operates can give us peace and hope and faith and courage as we think about the future. We might not know how God's will will be accomplished, but we definitely know that his will will be done. And the story of Esther is a dramatic reminder of that. God is sovereign over all things. Even as humans are free and make free decisions, God is sovereign and is able to bring about his purposes, his will. And the second theological couplet on display in Esther is this. God always punishes his enemies and God always protects his people. Always. Those are true. They go together. God punishes his enemies and he protects his people. Right? That's what happens in the book of Esther, is it not? Right? There are certain characters, especially Haman, who set themselves in opposition to God, in opposition to God's people. They make themselves enemies of God. God always, eventually, punishes his enemies. In other words, the scales of God's justice are fair. And when, when it looks like the bad guys are winning, we can know for sure that eventually they get what's coming to them. Maybe you hear that and you say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not everyone gets what's coming to them. Because all of us deserve God's wrath, and yet some of us receive God's grace. But that's definitely true, but remember how the point was phrased, right? God always punishes his enemies. God always protects his people. Right? According to the Bible, after Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, all of us, because of our own sin and rebellion, start out as God's enemies, start out deserving God's punishment. But those who receive God's grace by faith have ceased to be God's enemies, are no longer God's enemies, because Christ has received the punishment that we deserved. So that we're not God's enemies, but we're beloved members of his family. We're his people now. But make no mistake, those who position themselves in opposition to God will in fact receive justice for their treason. And that too is one of the main points of the book of Esther. When we say that God always protects his people, we don't mean that nothing bad ever, ever happens to God's people. Esther herself knew that there was a very real possibility that she would be killed when she entered the presence of the king. 
The point is not that God protects us from death so that nothing can harm us. The point is that God protects us through death so that even though we die, yet shall we live. God always protects his people. In other words, the reason that we can have faith like Esther is because her God is our God. The God we encounter in the stories of Scripture is a God who is king, is king right now and always will be king, is a God who is our deliverer. He has delivered us and made us part of his people, is a God who is trustworthy. He cannot lie. He will not ever deceive us. He is trustworthy as a God who's always at work, sometimes in ways that are seen, and sometimes in ways that are unseen, and sometimes in ways that feel incredibly miraculous, and sometimes in ways that feel normal, but he is always, always at work. Always. And God is with us wherever we go. Whether you feel it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you like that fact or not, God is always with us wherever we go. And because those things are true, because that's what God is like, then we too, like Esther, can be courageous and faithful and kind and loving and wise in all circumstances that we face. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for the young women who are part of the GEMS ministry. We know that you love them so much and we see so many ways that you're at work in their lives. And thank you for the, that sometimes the ways that you're at work in our lives and in the world is just obvious and noticeable and seen and miraculous. And other times it's quieter. It's less obvious. It's not as easy to see, but it's there and it's real. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your fingerprints, your presence, your power in our circumstances, all the different things that we face throughout various days. And I pray that you would remind us of your character, of what you're like, and that our knowledge of who you are would give us confidence to be faithful where we are in the, in the circumstances that we face. In Christ's name, amen.